Welcome to the Soulful CXO, where we discuss leadership principles, core values, health, wellness, and resiliency. I'm Dr. Rebecca Wynn, the founder and the host of the show. Do you have a topic or guest you would like to be featured on the show? Would you like to be a sponsor? Please reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at Rebecca at SoulfulCXO.com. Please go to our partner, Cybersecurity Tribe, for weekly show recaps and other resources. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Soulful CXO. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Wynn, and with us today, we are pleased to have Jim Roth. Jim has a long history of technology, cybersecurity as a leader, management consultant. He's formerly cybersecurity leader for many large companies, such as MassMutual, CVS Health, Aetna, J.P. Morgan Chase, KPMG, Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, American Express. He's a well-known icon in the industry. Awards he received include the Santa Fe Group Shared Assessment Lifetime Achievement Award, the CSO Hall of Fame, the ISE Luminary Award, the Senate Impact Award, Ivanta Breakaway Leadership Award, Information Security Executive of the Year, twice, the Bits Leadership Award. He's published numerous, numerous articles and white papers. He's currently on the board of Supply Wisdom, Gamma Tech, Exceptio, Global Resilience Federation. He's a former board chair for the Health Information Sherry Sharing um, Now Center, so the HISAC. Before that, he served for five years with the financial aspect of that, that the FSISAC. He currently is an advisor for many startups, serves as an advisory capacity investor for specific venture funds. He's Institute for Critical Infrastructure Fellow, so the ICIT Fellow. And he still finds time to mentor other people in the industry, such as myself. Jim, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Rebecca. I was dozing off there for a second. <laughs> Your background's amazing. Jim, I just have to ask you, tell, tell everybody how you got started in the industry, because I think it's really fascinating. You, like myself, didn't even come from technology or cybersecurity background, but got into this great field. What did you study in college, and how did you find yourself even being in this field? It was definitely opportunistic. And I've talked to a lot of security people. We, and I think, fell, falling into cybersecurity is a common trend. I was a history major as an undergrad, and I was convinced that I was going to be an entrepreneur. I'd started a little business when I was uh, in high school and uh, uh, worked it through college. Started another business when I was in college. Really, this is nickel and dime stuff, but I just figured that that's what I was going to do. So I studied history because I was, I mean, I was just really passionate about it and interested in it. Never wanted to teach or anything. I did, you know, just was uh, curious and interested in it. So cybersecurity, I think I owe it to my wife. I was in IT for many years, I used to start as a developer and project manager and then ran consulting practices for a number of IT consulting firms. And realized when I had three kids that I couldn't travel as much. So I wanted a job where I didn't have to travel. So I went to join uh, American Express out in uh, Minneapolis and that worked great. But after the third winter there, my wife, Ellen, said at uh, dinner one night, look, the kids and I are moving back east. Would you like to come? And that was the initiative that said, yeah, yeah, I think I would. So I called my boss, who was the CIO at American Express. I said, Glenn, you got to help me out here. You know, get me back to New York. He said, I will, but no problem. We're going to put you into not IT, but into a different group that did data analytics and specifically customer data analytics 
And so I said, I'll sweep the floors. I don't care. That sounds fine with me. So I did that and they merged that group with the a risk management group. So I ended up reporting to the chief risk officer at American Express. And about two and a half years later, they were looking for their first CISO. And they decided to go internally. And they said, Jim, you're going to be the first CISO. So I had, you know, I had some compliance work that I did when I was in IT, but I really didn't have a security background. I had an IT background. And I just figured, well, you know, I'll give it a shot and see how that works out. On my first day, a guy who has in-depth cybersecurity expertise passed me in a hallway and he gave me a piece of paper and he said, look, keep this name and phone number for you when you get in over your head. He didn't say if, he said when you get in over your head. So I knew that was inevitable. And that day, I was looking at my calendar for the next day and I realized that there was this calendar invite for a meeting with the OCC, which was a presentation of American Express's information security strategy. And I realized that I was the one giving the presentation to the OCC. And that's when I realized how over my head I was. So I actually called a number. It was a guy named Steve Katz, who everyone knows, father of cybersecurity. Steve was coaching and helping CISOs at the time. And I told him the situation. He said, I'll be right over. Not only did he come over like 45 minutes later, he brought two other CISOs from two other financial service firms that cleared their calendar for the afternoon and said, we're here to help you prepare for the OCC. And so there were a number of lessons that I learned then. Number one, there's no such thing as competition in cybersecurity. And number two, you know, you give and you help others be more effective as, uh, as a professional, and it really helps the industry and helps everyone, and it comes back at you later. So that was kind of my grounding in cybersecurity and in sharing information, and it's why I'm passionate about it even today. So that's where the roots come from. And that's really amazing. And I know I've always been a person who's given back myself, but it's really great to hear when people like yourself say, you know, from the very get-go, you're very fortunate to have people, and not only one, but three people immediately have your back. That's just awesome out there. I know that you've also said this, and this always cracks me up, and if you just read it in print, you might read that you're, you know, you float on water, you walk into these executive board meetings and everything else is okay. So that's no reason why that other story um, resonates. But I heard a rumor that you say that when you were a sister all those years, you slept like a baby. You didn't have any stress, no nothing. <laughs> what, what's the deal with that, Chief? So I did uh, make that comment. Now, I have to, in all honesty, I stole that line from Steve Katz. So I have to give him credit for it. But basically, yeah, as CISOs, we all sleep like babies. But if you think about how an infant sleeps, it's basically waking up every two to three hours crying. So that, that's kind of the relative uh, equivalent of uh, being a CISO, I guess. Yeah, thank you. I want to make sure I give you time to, to clarify that one. You know, just because we mentioned that, like, you know, it's a lot of stress as a CISO and dealing with things. I know you and I have talked about that, especially over the past year. And I know one of the things that I had to do a couple of years ago is I really had to start thinking about, you know, my business resiliency is myself, right? Business continuity starts with myself. And so I really started looking at my nutrition and my health. And you know, I'm a health coach now, too, just to help mentor other people and things like that. What do you find or what did you find that helped you deal with that day in and day out stress? What, how do you manage that or how did you manage that? 
Yeah. So I'll tell you one thing that I have a much better appreciation for today that I'm retired of the last year. And I don't think I really understood the impact of that stress at the time. And I have a much better appreciation because I feel liberated today. I mean, I love the work that I do today. I look forward to it and I have an optimal balance. But when you protect an enterprise for you know, really in any role, you're on 24 by 7 by 365 and you're doing other things. You're sleeping and, you know, eating meals and so forth and doing all the normal things. But it's always in the back of your mind. It's always something you're thinking about. It's always something like, what if that ransomware attack, you know, nails us? Are we well prepared? What do we have to do to get better prepared? How can we be more effective? Are we applying the lessons learned? It's a continual kind of impact that every enterprise protector has to address. So that's, I have a much better appreciation for the impact that it has. And I can't tell you how many people have said to me, Jim, you look so relaxed. And it's because I don't have that responsibility hanging over my head. So let's backtrack a couple of years ago. What really helped me and I think helped others is the pandemic and the resulting work from home model. Most of us, when we made that transition, we did so and invested the excess time that was a credit from the commute into doing more work. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that's not really a sustainable model. And so it forced us as leaders, we thought the infrastructure wasn't gonna hold up It wasn't the infrastructure didn't hold up. It was the people that couldn't sustain the the impact it had on their personal life and their health. And so we as leaders had to fundamentally change our behavior. So number one, we had to educate our teams that the first thing and the most important thing is your health. That's the cornerstone. And your personal health includes your mental well-being. So so that's kind of the cornerstone. So you have to figure out what it is you have to do first and foremost. Forget about your family just for a moment. You have to think about yourself and what your health needs are. So those of us that maybe were used to going to a gym to work out every day can't go to the gym any longer. It's very difficult to buy exercise equipment online because of the supply shortages. So you have to adjust. Now, I took up walking and you know did that extensively. I'd schedule calls where I knew I could walk and the other person was walking. We were both kind of encouraging good behavior there. And that's what I need to do. But everybody's different. The point is, we as leaders had to tell our employees, first and foremost, think about your health. Not how much you're working, not how you're going to get your work done. Think about your health first. The second, in order of priority, is think about who are dependent upon you. Now, we had you know, kids going through the same trauma of change and transition and uncertainty, either attending school virtually or maybe sometimes att- or hybrid learning. So you had all sorts of adjustments that were being made on kids. Some of us have, uh, you know, our parents that are living with us where we're the caregivers. Those are your dependents. And so second on the list is take care of your dependent needs. The third thing on the list is adjust your work schedule 
to accommodate the first two things. Now, this is a kind of a fundamental change in leadership posture from conventional practices of the last several decades. Because there, the model was the leader who was always available, always respond to email, always text messaging, always there, always weekends, nights, whatever it was, was readily available and supportive. And we had to move away from that mental model of what a leader is and really transition to a leader that was a cheerleader for good health and a positive impact on supporting dependent needs. And that has to be, you know, kind of the foundation. And it, it's not just saying, hey, you should all do that. It's, it's demonstrating that behavior. It's adjusting your meetings. I, uh, one of the things we did is um, we eliminated two days a week, no meetings, no formally scheduled meetings. And then we eliminate, we basically said the formal meetings have to be within a certain hour time slot. And, you know, it was uh, nine to two, I think, or nine to four, something like that. It was uh, limited in those three days. And that actually, you know, introduced a significant amount of change. But it was, uh, it was an example of where leaders were living the behaviors they were espousing. And we all had to learn, as leaders, we had to learn how to do that. That wasn't a leadership competency that was necessarily inherent in our role models, uh, who we learned from, it was something we had to fundamentally do. And then you throw on top of that, the fact that uh, we had to learn how to be tolerant, how to be an ally for diversity and to promote inclusive behaviors. Uh, and so, all of these changes really put an impact on people and leaders to help with the impact on people. Tremendous learning opportunity for I mean, I literally had to learn skills that I'd never even understood I had to learn uh, previously. And it took a while. I mean, I had to talk about, you know, systemic racism and the fact that I was privileged. I never thought of myself as being privileged, but I was. I was fundamentally, I benefited from the system. And, and so I had to acknowledge that. And then learn how to appreciate and understand those that didn't come from that privilege and how to enable and empower them as people, you know, and as, uh, as professionals. So the reality is, you know, leadership similar to parenting is very humbling because there are so many skills that are essential that we have to invest in developing and practicing. And there's nothing easy about it. Well, those are great points. I know one of the things that's always been my pet peeve is the people who have 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock or even 9 a.m. meetings first thing on Monday morning. I tried to squash that because I said no one's, no one's their best self at meetings first thing Monday morning. And like you said, even like for me on Fridays after 2 o'clock, no. Don't schedule that 4 o'clock meeting. Don't do anything like that. Let people try and wind down and go home. And just when you talked about Globally, one of the things I think too that brought in is like we take for granted how many personal square feet you even have in your home. Not everybody has has you know that office, as right. well. And so sometimes people are really going to the office is their sanctuary. So mm. I think I've got a lot of great things along those lines. You know, with that, when we look about just you know leadership and, and capabilities as leaders, one of the things I've been really looking at is 
you know, the difference between executive presidents, leadership presidents, dealing with the boardroom, and you have so many different leaders. And I would just tell you, you know, my 2020, I saw a lot of bad leaders, unfortunately, a lot of people who my way or the highway and things like that. You've been in a lot of different boardrooms. How do you go about like reading that boardroom for the first time? Because one of the things is, is a lot of people are switching jobs right now, right? They have an opportunity right now to go ahead and say, you know what? I haven't liked where I've worked for many years as a CISO, CIO, CTO. I'm actually going to spin out to a new organization. But some of those newer organizations feel angst too. And they want you to like get in there and just solve all the problems when you don't even know the problems yet. You've switched jobs over the years. How have you like tried to manage that successfully? There's a leadership skill or certainly a cybersecurity skill or competence that I undervalued and underappreciated early in my career in some cases ignored, and later my career invested heavily in and had significant positive results at the end. And it's not something that I've found anywhere in cybersecurity literature, but here's what it is. I'm going to use language in a very precise way because there's a nuance here. So, it seems that it would be a good thing for a new CISO to meet the expectations of their stakeholders. And their stakeholders include the CEO and the CEO's direct reports, certainly their leader. And then, of course, the board, if it's a public uh, company, the board of directors, uh, they're all stakeholders. Now, they're not the only stakeholders, but you know, they're, the, they're the kind of the essential stakeholders. And what's normal and natural is for a CISO to play the role in terms of behaviors of the subject matter expert. Why? Well, if you look at the the senior leaders, the ones with the most cybersecurity, well, that's typically the CISO. If you look at the board composition, the one with the most cybersecurity experts, well, that's typically the CISO. And so there's this precedent that the CISO is the subject matter expert. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is stakeholders will typically delegate decision-making that they don't view as being critical or essential to a subject matter expert. And they'll say like, Jim, what are the top cyber risks for the enterprise? You tell us. You, you tell us what they are. You tell us what the order is. And they, yeah, I'll go along with that because I'm delegating that decision to the subject matter expert. This is the one that knows more about cybersecurity than I do, so therefore I delegate that. Here's the downside to that for the enterprise. When the decisions of critical decisions of allocating scarce resources to the highest risks, when those decisions get made and in, in real time, the individual stakeholder will not honor the decisions that may have been made previously to acknowledge the top cyber risks. Why? That decision was delegated. And so they look at their own self-interest and make decisions in that context, not because they're bad people, that's just what they'll do. And so what's required, if we go back to the root cause, what's required is the CISO can't meet expectations. They have to manage expectations. There's a fundamental difference between 
managing expectations and meeting expectations. Meeting expectations is being a subject matter expert. Managing expectations is being a facilitator of the consensus that's essential as a foundation for cyber resilience for the enterprise. Consensus is what the outcome, the desired outcome should be. In order to have consensus, the facilitator, by definition, has to convey neutrality over the actual decision. Their job is to lead the process of coming to consensus, which means they have to engage others to make sure that they're sharing their perspective. And that decision is the outcome of the collective team that's the decision-making body coming to consensus. And consensus is different from agreement. <laughs> consensus has six levels. So one person in that stakeholder group could say, I don't agree with this outcome. However, I've shared my perspective and rationale for why I don't agree with this outcome. I recognize and acknowledge the value of the team that's making this decision. And I'm a minority in expressing this view. So therefore, I'm going to support this decision because I recognize the value of the team making the decision. So that's consensus. It's not agreement, but it's consensus. The CISO has to be a facilitator. Now, you tell me, Rebecca, where does it say that in the CISO manual, right? It doesn't. But I learned this the hard way of seeing those downstream decisions on allocation of resources crumble in the face of pressure. At the same token, as a facilitator, getting stakeholders to come to consensus on what the top cyber risks are for the enterprise and therefore what the decisions that need to be made to allocate resources to manage the top cyber risks, and then having to make adjustments when the risk changes, that is enterprise cyber resilience. And I don't think a CISO can be successful in creating that as an outcome without consensus and without being a facilitator. Extremely excellent points. I was just, I was actually consulting with a company last week and they just like, what's the solution? They, they got hit with the ransomware. What's the solution? What do we go buy? And I'm like, wait a minute, I got to talk to some people. I got to see what's going on. What's the root cause? So then we can go ahead and we start seeing some of the stuff. And, and in those discussions, I actually spoke to one of the legal team and they said, you know what? The problem with our CISO is our CISO thinks that they have one person reporting to you, but they really have 30 people who are really who they should be reporting into. And I'm like, what? That's quite a bit. How do you go about that when you when you would start a new, go into a new company or something like that as like the CISO or CIO or CTO? I'm finding that those golden connections. Do you have any words of wisdom for us from those lines on how do you even get started? Yeah, Rebecca, there are actually some techniques that you can use. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take um, the core stakeholders, divide them into two groups, the board and the executive leadership team. Yeah, they might be called different names, but it's basically the CEO and direct reports. So let's start with the board. 
The person that you look for as the CISO on the board is the DBG. That would be designated board geek. And every board has at least one. Now, who is that designated board geek? Because it's certainly not written up that way in the annual report. So how do you figure out who that is? And it turns out that the dynamic of a board, which is pretty critical and essential to success for a company, and a lot of people don't really recognize that nuance, what happens in decisions that are technical, specifically IT-related decisions, the board has this behavior where if it's a tough decision or it requires technical expertise, most of the board sits back in the physical meeting and turns their head towards the DBG. And so that's your indicator of who the DBG is. Now, once you know who it is, that's the person that you schedule time with on somewhere between a three to five to one ratio for all of your interaction with the formal board or board committees. So for example, if you're going to present for you know 30 minutes at a board meeting, then you're going to spend an hour and a half with your DBG before the board meeting. You're going to go through the material with them. You're going to talk about what the critical issues are and any decisions and the rationale for the decision. Now, the reason you do that is in the committee meeting or the board meeting, when you're going through your presentation and somebody asks the question, you're going to pause. The reason you're going to pause is you're going to see if your DBG is going to answer the question for them. And if your DBG answers the question for them, they carry tremendous credibility that you do not have by definition. And so the natural reaction is for the CISO to say, I'll answer that question. Again, being the cybersecurity expert, but it's actually the wrong thing to do. The right thing to do is let your DBG answer it for you with the rationale that you've already prepped them with. And they, again, have credibility with the rest of the board members that you won't have, except when they are acting in that capacity, your credibility goes up. <laughs> so it's actually a win-win for everyone, but it's not natural. So that's one technique specifically for the board. Now, let's look at the leadership team. The person you're looking for there is your sponsor. A sponsor is not really a mentor. They can play both roles. But sponsorship says that they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. They're going to give you a level of trust. They're going to demonstrate that trust with what they say and how they say it to others. And sometimes that sponsorship is your leader, but it doesn't have to be your leader. And you're actually stronger if your sponsorship comes from somebody who's not your leader. The ideal scenario is to turn the CEO into your sponsor. Now, how do you do that? You can't do that overnight, but the way it works is you share in one-on-one -on -one time with, uh, you should do this with all the executive leaders. And in that one-on-one -on -one time, you share with them a decision 
or an outcome and a rationale for that. And you spend more time in the rationale than the decision. And most of us are results-oriented and we're thinking that we have to get that decision. That's what's important. The rationale is actually really important. And so you actually share and adjust the rationale through that interaction with your potential sponsor. And what will come of that is that during interaction in meetings, your sponsor, either formally or informally, which is just as good, will give you some wind at your back and support, especially when it's a tough decision. And they'll use the rationale that you've essentially armed them with. And so these are real subtle, but foundational to success, both for the executive leaders and for the board. And these techniques, again, have you ever seen them written down? I've never seen these things published anywhere. I learned by making mistakes, which is a pretty good way to learn because you know you get burned and you're like, I'm not doing that again, right? So it forces you into trying out some different techniques. But these techniques, from my perspective, have what allowed me to experience, which I think every CISO needs this opportunity once in their career. It allowed me to experience something where true enterprise-wide cyber resilience, which, what does that look like? It's basically a set of enterprise-wide practices that lead to resilience. Namely, you can respond quickly to a cybersecurity incident with minimal business impact and apply the lessons learned from incidents to a continuous improvement process, even when the incidents don't happen just in your enterprise. That, to me, is as good as it ever gets. This whole notion of never having cybersecurity incidents is, is, is absolutely absurd as even an aspiration. Any major enterprise today, you've got a significant tax surface, and that tax surface is going to get attacked. And you, know, you can't avoid that. But what you can do is you can respond you know, quickly, minimize the business impact, and apply, most important, apply the lessons learned going forward. And I've had experiences where I, as the CISO, did not have to lead any of that. It happened organically across the enterprise. Uh, Spectre and Meltdown, great example where the IT infrastructure leadership did all of the right steps. I did nothing, (laughs) nothing other than to be a cheerleader and say, way to go. And to me, that's as good as it gets. That's cyber resilience. And that's what we should strive for. I think every CISO should have that experience at least once in their career, because it's tremendously rewarding. Well, those are excellent, excellent wisdom points. And I thank you for that. Jim, unfortunately, our time's running short. How can people get a hold of you for speaking opportunities or if they want to see about you coming on the board? How do they get a hold of you today? Well, I can tell you this. No one's having problems with that because I get a lot of inquiries <laughs> all the time and I get more inquiries than I have time. That's a good thing uh, in of itself. You know, LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to follow me. I have about 46 people that I currently mentor, you being one of them. And, and I think. I think there's 12 CISOs, uh, current uh, CISOs. 
And then the rest are either CISO wannabes, but I even have some students, undergrads, as well as grad students that, uh, that I mentor today. Steve Katz was my mentor. Ed Amoroso was another one of my mentors. Steve said to me, look, the way mentorship works is the mentees do all the work. They are the ones that determine the frequency, they schedule the meetings, and they figure out what the agenda is. Basically, the mentor just shows up and offers some wisdom occasionally. And the uh, burden is really on the, on the mentees. So my advice to anybody who is looking to gain some insights as a cybersecurity professional is just reach out and be willing to do the work. And uh, certainly in my case, I'm happy to mentor anyone. No, great. Thank you, Jim, so much for being on the show. You are a soulful CXO. Thanks, Rebecca. 